Welcome to the 171st podcast, and the 141st is a city on a hill church. Pastor Mike opens Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, and entitles this message, God's Beloved Vineyard, Part 1, with a subtitle, A Bearing Good Fruit. God gave Israel everything it needed to serve him and prosper in the land of milk and honey, but they failed. These messages tell all of us what the responsibility of God's people are. In this message, Pastor Mike tells us about the responsibility given national Israel. Next week, he applies these messages to us, God's church. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. Okay, we're in the book of Isaiah. If you'd like to open up to Isaiah chapter 5. You were a quiet crowd tonight out there. <laughs> there are people here. If you're watching online, there are actually people here tonight, but they're just, they're just quiet tonight. So very studious, paying attention. Isaiah chapter 5, this is a, a fascinating study here um, with the parable of the vineyard. And this is going to be a two-part message. Uh, tonight is part one, and we're going to read Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7. And uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, the message will be entitled God's Beloved Vineyard, God's Beloved Vineyard, part one. And the subtitle is Bearing Good Fruit. And this evening, we're going to look at Israel as God's vineyard, which is actually what Isaiah is referring to, or who Isaiah is referring to here in the parable, is Israel or Judah as God's beloved vineyard. Next week, we're going to look at the church as God's vineyard, and uh, uh, we being those who now God is asking to bear fruit, even as he asked Old Testament Israel uh, to bear good fruit. They did not, and so he, he basically judged them. Uh, but then we are also called as Christians to bear good fruit in the New Testament, and, and Jesus uses those parables and those uh, allegories uh, to compare us to uh, his vineyard in the New Testament. So next week we'll look at the application for the church. This week it's going to be uh, more for Israel. So God's beloved vineyard, part one. Isaiah chapter five, verse one says this. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, 
It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So again in verse 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding His vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So the Lord is, is calling out and calling to Israel, and here specifically Judah, uh, as His vineyard. He, he, basically, He called this nation into existence. They didn't exist before God made them to exist. Abraham was uh, really a Babylonian. He was from the Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldean area was Babylon. And so when God called Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, he, he took an idolater. He took a pagan because everybody after the flood, they were all pagans, really. It seemed that God had been forgotten after the flood. The knowledge of God was lost after the flood, apparently. Uh, and so God called Abram and said, I'm going to call you away from the idols. I'm going to bring you to a promised land. Uh, to the Holy Land, and and you are going to be my chosen people. And you're going to have uh, a seed that is going to bless the whole earth. One of your offspring uh, is going to bless the whole earth uh, as a result of you, Abram. Genesis chapter 12. And, and, and God started with one man, and He built a whole nation from that one man, from Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. You had Isaac, you had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and this became the nation of Israel. So they didn't exist before God planted them in the land. They weren't His people before He called them His people. And they, uh, they blew it. They went after other gods rather than worshiping and loving and serving and obeying and reflecting the God who called them into existence. Uh, they went after the other gods of the heathens, the gods of, of the land, the pagan gods. And so God uh, sent his prophets. He sent his messengers. He tried to call them back to himself and they would they would turn back uh, uh, to their gods, to their idols. Uh, they, they'd have some, some, some good kings. They've, they'd have some bad kings. They've, they'd have some, some, some good prophets. They, they'd have some false prophets. But they just didn't really ever uh, surrender completely to God as a nation. There was always that tug and that pull to go after other gods. Uh, and, and so God is now comparing, uh, as a parable here, uh, the vineyard that he planted to the nation of Israel that he planted in his land, in his land, the Holy Land, the land of Israel. Um, specifically, he's going to mention here the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the capital of Judah. So these were his chosen people. The Jews are still called God's chosen people. They are his elect. God called them his elect. They were a special people unto himself, a special treasure unto himself. And yet they rejected him and they rejected his prophets. They killed his prophets that he sent to them. And eventually God just had to judge them, severely judge them uh, with uh, the Babylonian uh, siege and then the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and then the exile in the 70 year Babylonian captivity. So God 
says, I'm going to sing a song of my beloved uh, regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Verse 2, he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So God does everything well. Israel can't blame God. Judah can't blame God for their fruitlessness or for producing bad fruit. It wasn't God's fault. God did everything right. God planted them there. He gave them everything they needed. He cleared out the stones and, 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 and planted the choicest vine. He put a tower in its midst and, and he made a wine press. He expected that it was going to bring forth great fruit. Why wouldn't it? It was a vine that he had planted, a choice vine that he had planted. Uh, and so uh, he, he set them up for a fruitful harvest, but in the end, they produced wild grapes or sour grapes, useless, worthless grapes, grapes that would just be growing on their own on the hillside uh, wildly, no value to them. And, and so uh, the Lord is going to say what he's going to do with this vineyard here in a minute. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there, this, this theme, this idea of, of Israel being the vineyard of God uh, is, is something that actually is throughout the Old Testament. God compared, and we'll look at a bunch of scriptures here tonight about that in the Old Testament, about Israel being likened to God's vineyard. But in Deuteronomy chapter 11, here in the book of the law, Moses, uh, you know, uh, speaking here and writing here, Deuteronomy 11 verse 10, we read this. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you have sown your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. It was a very special land to God. It's still a special land to God, actually. Even to this day, Israel is a very special place to God. Uh, he has plans for Israel. He has plans for Jerusalem. Uh, even today, thousands of years later. But God was saying, I put you in the best place. I, I, gave, I, I got, got rid of all of your enemies. I gave you cities that you didn't have to build. You just moved right into cities that you didn't build. Houses, you lived in houses that you didn't build. Cities that you didn't build. You ate from the crops that you didn't plant. You had all of the livestock because they, they drove out all the enemies. God went before them and drove out all of the pagans that were there, the enemies, as they came in to take possession of the land. And it was turnkey. They walked right in and everything was there for them. And it was indeed a land that was flowing with milk and honey. The Lord, the Lord loved His people and He loves His promised land. We read in verse 13, God says, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey My commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourselves, 
lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Remember, this is before they went into the promised land. Moses is, 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 the Lord is speaking through Moses. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the last book of the law. And it was before they went in. So all of these were prophecies that, of course, were later fulfilled. Uh, but God is warning them. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and you serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you. And he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth." For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. Verse 26, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the Lord your God, but, but turn aside from the way which I command you to go, to go after other gods which you have not known. That's exactly what they did. And by the time Isaiah was on the scene, they were pretty much too far gone into idolatry of the worship of all these other gods. There really was no, at that point, there was really no turning the nation back around again, like turning around an aircraft carrier on a dime out at sea. It just wasn't going to happen. The people, even though they had good kings, uh, they had King Hezekiah, they had King Josiah, uh, they had King Uzziah. These were good godly kings, but the people's hearts were wicked. Uh, and they didn't want to worship the Lord. They went through the motions of going to temple and offering the sacrifice and, and saying their prayers and so forth. But they were secretly worshiping other gods in the high places, in the oak groves and so forth. And they were even offering their children as human sacrifices to Molech and worshiping Ashtoreth and Baal. And, and it, there was just no reaching them. There was no turning them around. And, and God had warned them he had promised them a blessing if they loved him and they served him and a curse if they went after the other gods. And so God uh, gave them every opportunity uh, to, to be successful as a nation and to be uh, prosperous as a nation and to be fruitful as a nation. But they turned and they went after other gods. 
Back in Isaiah 5, verse 3, he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. So we know now he's talking to, to those in Judah and those in Jerusalem, which is where the priests were, where the temple was, where the king was ruling from was in Jerusalem and Judah. And so he's speaking to the leaders, spiritual and political leaders of the nation. And he's saying, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, what, what, you know, if I've done something wrong, tell me, God is saying. If there's something I've done wrong here, tell me what I've done wrong. Judge between me and my vineyard. And then he says in verse four, what more could have been done to my vineyard than what I, that I have not done in it? What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? The Lord is saying, what more could I have done for you, Israel? What more could I have done? I gave you everything. I gave you every opportunity. I was so patient with you for all these hundreds of years. And, and yet you're still not fruitful. You're not bearing the fruit that I want to see. You're going after uh, these other gods, which was spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication by going after other gods. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, I'll read this to you here. Second Chronicles 36 verse 15 talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which actually came after Isaiah prophesied, not long after, within probably a hundred years of when Isaiah prophesied, maybe 120 years. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them. Second Chronicles 36:15. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, the prophets, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Verse 17, therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And, and so uh, the record states that they, that they rejected God's messengers Again and again, they rejected and killed his prophets, the one who he was sending. They, they despised his words. They didn't want to hear God's word. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? People don't want to hear God's word anymore in this country. People don't want to hear the things that God has. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about righteousness, holiness. They don't want to hear about the gospel because it means that if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to hell according to the gospel message. And so the church is, is dumbing down and watering down the message, giving easy messages that are easy to hear, tickling the ears of the congregants. And now we have a biblically illiterate generation in our country. And now when people hear the Bible, just like the Jews of old, of Judah of old, they hate the word of God. They hate the prophets of God. They don't want to hear you speak. Like David said, uh, I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. In other words, everybody's happy if you keep your mouth shut. 
But as soon as you start proclaiming the truth of God's Word, you start talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge this world and that if we don't repent, our nation is going to be judged by God, they turn us off. And, and, and literally, sometimes they turn us off of the Internet now. Uh, they're beginning censorship on, on the Internet messages that they will allow that's going out there all over the Internet. So uh, it, there's just nothing new under the sun. I mean, you look at our country and all that God has done for our country, and our country is coming apart at the seams. Of course, there's bigots and there's racists on all sides. There, there's racists of all different stripes, shades, and colors. Always have been. It's sin. It's sin nature. It's evil. It's wrong. Uh, but the, that's not the reason that our country's coming apart at the seams in 2020. The reason is, is because we've rejected the God who founded this country, just like Israel did. We've been here in our land 400 years or so, at least the, the pilgrims that came over, the Quakers, uh, John, uh, uh, Penn and, and the others that came, William Penn and the others that came over and founded this country in Jamestown, 1605. It was so that they could be free to worship God as Christians. They didn't want to have to worship at the Roman Catholic churches in Europe. They didn't want to have to worship at the Church of England and make the King of England, who was a corrupt king, wicked king, uh, to see him as the head of the church. So they came here to have religious freedom. And that's, that, that was the foundation of our country. The light and the glory is a great book of history about the founding of our, of, of our, of our nation, uh, even prior to the American Revolution and all of that. You know that, uh, today they want to take down statues commemorating Abraham Lincoln at college campuses because they say Abraham Lincoln, although he was anti-slavery, he was not pro-black. He was not, um, he was not somebody who was for the black population of his time. He believed in, even though he didn't believe in slavery, he believed in a separation of the peoples that probably it would be best. This is in 1858. He had a speech, uh, before he ran for president, uh, before the Civil War began, that he said that he believed that that, that, that every man should be created equal, every man should be free, but he didn't believe in desegregating the society. He said it would never work. Remember, 1858. It wouldn't have worked in 1858. My goodness, it took, you know, a hundred years plus for desegregation to take place realistically in this country. And, and yet because he was for segregation of some sort in 1858 before the Civil War. It doesn't matter that he's the one that, you know, gave the greatest speech in our history, the Emancipation Proclamation, and set all of the slaves free in 1863. He still needs to go. His statue needs to go because he was not, you know, he was, he, he was, he, he wasn't enough on that side. And, and so be, be aware that there's, you know, we're all going to have a, a crosshairs on us. I, I read an NPR news earlier tonight that now they're looking at Christian churches with, with the, you know, with the microscope, with the magnifying glass saying, you know, the Christian churches have a history of racism in America that still persists to this day. And so it's, uh, our country is coming apart at the seams, guys. And it's because we've turned our back on God. In other words, if we were serving and loving uh, God, we would love one another no matter what color of the skin uh, the person has. We would love each other. We would esteem others higher than ourselves. We would do good to one another. That's what Christians are supposed to do. But because we have rejected God, 
We've thrown him out of our schools. We've thrown him out of our government. We've thrown him out of our entertainment. All the entertainment is not just godless. It is that. Our entertainment is godless. But it's worse than that. It's evil. It's wicked. It promotes wickedness. And so this is the reason our country is falling apart. Just like what happened to Israel. Just like what happened to Judah. And if we don't turn back to God and humble ourselves and, and begin to re-surrender, as it were, ourselves, the Christians in this nation, humble ourselves, surrender ourselves afresh and anew to God, I don't think there's any hope left for this nation. I don't know how much time we have. And I'm not saying that we're going to cease to exist, but we certainly will not be the powerhouse that we are today. We're still the most prosperous, wealthiest nation in the history of the world. We have the most powerful economy. Everybody uses our dollars all over the world. We have the most powerful military in the world. That protects our shores. You know, we've never fought another war on our soil, really, except for the Civil War, uh, after we were established as a nation. We've never been invaded by a foreign army. But that could very easily change. We have lots of enemies out there. And so if we turn our backs on God and think, well, we don't need Christianity. We don't need the Bible. We don't want to hear the Word of God. All that's left is judgment because we are no longer, just like Israel, we are no longer God's people. And God doesn't owe us anything but to judge us for our sins. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 17, Jeremiah was literally boots on the ground uh, testifying and prophesying to the kings of Judah and to the priests in Jerusalem before the Babylonians came and, uh, and just decimated them. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 17 says this, have you not brought this on yourself? He's asking the question rhetorically. Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you. And your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Verse 20, for of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. Verse 23, how can you say I am not polluted? I have not gone after the Baals. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. What more could the Lord have done? He did everything he could and they didn't want him. <clears throat> they rejected him. They spurned him. They hated his prophets. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, not only did they not listen to Jeremiah, but they listened to all the false prophets who were prophesying to them. And they didn't listen to the one true prophet. 
And then they threw him in jail. They threw him into the public latrine, the toilet. Uh, they, they mocked him. And, and so God is saying, what, what more could I do? What else could I have done for you than what I have done? He continues in verse 26 of Jeremiah 2. It says, as the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me, for they have turned their back on me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Sounds pretty familiar. You know, nobody wants God's rules. They don't want his laws. They don't want his commandments until your world's falling apart. And then, oh, God, save us, save us, save us. We're the same way. And, and God was saying, you know, you're going after these other gods. You're, 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 you're worshiping trees. They made statues and idols out of wood. You're worshiping stones. They carved statues and idols out of stone. And he's saying, you know, you're acting like these you know, inanimate things made you. My father is a tree. My mother is a stone. You're worshiping and bowing down. And they were even offering their children as human sacrifices to their idols. He continues. He says in verse 28, but where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. That's how many gods that they worship was the number of cities or the number of your gods, O Judah. He says, why will you plead with me? For you, you all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Verse 35 says this, Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. And see, the problem is, is that they were filled with iniquity. They were filled with wickedness. They were filled with sin, just like our nation is today. And yet we don't think that God's going to judge our nation. Why? Because we're America? What does God owe America? Who are we if we're not a Christian nation? Who are we if we're not the great missionary nation sending missionaries out over the world? Who are we if we're not the, the city that is set upon a hill that cannot be hidden that we once were in our history? Not a perfect nation, certainly. We're, we're, we're humans and we have a lot of wickedness in our history, but we were a Christian nation before and we're not anymore. And so there's nothing left for God to do with the people that have spurned him, turned their backs to him, and gone to worship other gods than for him to remove his blessing and to allow the natural consequences for their sins to come against them. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 23, we read this. But this is what I commanded them saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Like the idea of backsliding. They went backward 
and not forward. Since the day, verse 25, that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. <clears throat> Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. <clears throat> Wild grapes, fruitless wickedness in the land uh, of Judah, the land, the holy land, the promised land of God, the land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> and, and they would not obey. They would not incline their ear, but they followed their own counsels and went after the dictates of their own evil hearts. And that is always the problem. We want to do our own thing. We don't want God or anyone to tell us how to live. And whenever you look at Israel's history, really, you can look at the history of the world, even the history of the church. Whenever you have a people where every man is doing, every woman is doing what's right in their own eyes, that's the beginning of the end for that nation, at least as a powerful uh, nation on the earth. When everyone is doing what they want to do, that's the beginning of the end. And, and that was true for um, Israel. It was true for Judah. It, it was true for Rome. It was true for Spain. It was true for uh, Greece and the Greek Orthodox Church. It was true for, for England and the Church of England. All of these great nations that were Christian nations at one time. And it's going to be true for America. We are not going to be exempt from this law. When everybody is, is doing what they want, and nobody has an appetite for the Word of God. Not nobody. You're here tonight. I know there's some of you. There's the remnant, always. There's always the remnant. But the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians have no appetite for the Word of God. They have no appetite for the things of God. What hope do we have if the Christians don't want God to interfere in their lives? There is no more hope. Our only hope is to turn back to the Lord. And Israel here was producing wild grapes and wickedness in the land. And God was sending them His prophets and His word and His messengers and they were rejecting and refusing to hear them. He continues back in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 5. And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, verse 6. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Remember, God had warned them in Deuteronomy don't think once you go into the land and you're being blessed, don't think that I'm not the one bringing the blessings. Don't think that you're going to be blessed if you turn after other gods. It's not going to happen. He warned them and He warned them and He warned them again. And Isaiah is warning them a hundred years before the Babylonians ever came and besieged them and carried them away captive. So God was still warning them here through Isaiah, you know, decades at least, but probably closer to 125 years before the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C. and carried them away captive. And so 
he's saying, uh, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take away the hedge of protection and it's going to be destroyed. My vineyard is going to be torn down. It's going to be burned with fire. He says, I'm going to break down its walls. It'll be trampled over and trampled underfoot. You remember in the book of Job that uh, God had said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Perfect man, a righteous man. He always does what's right and he loves me. And uh, Satan says, well, that's because you put a hedge of protection around him. I can't get to him because you've hedged him about. I can't get to him. If you were to remove the hedge and I had access to him, he would curse you to your face. And, and you know the story. But uh, God does put a hedge of protection around his people. We don't know what he's protecting us from, the evil that's out there to try and destroy us and to try and harm us individually, our families, our churches, our nations. You know, they're, they're, if God doesn't protect us and the enemy has full reign to just come and to rip us to pieces, none of us would survive. And so God is saying here, I am going to remove your hedge and your enemies are going to come in and they are going to trample you underfoot and burn your city to the ground, which is exactly what ended up happening. That's what happens to any nation that forgets God that knew God and forgets God and they go after other gods, the gods of this world. And the gods of this world are always represented no matter what you call them, by power, by pleasure, by sex, by lust, by money, by violence and war. All of these things are worshipped as gods by mankind and humankind because everybody wants power or pleasure or uh, sometimes they want protection against they're afraid of some of the gods that are worshipped. And so they worship other gods that are supposedly going to protect them from the other gods. So uh, any nation or any person that forgets God and, and goes after other gods, uh, you know, it's a losing strategy. You're never going to uh, succeed in that quest to find purpose or to find uh, hope. Back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a lot to actually say about, about this because Jeremiah was, was literally prophesying at the time that it was happening where Isaiah was prophesying a hundred years before it was happening. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10 says this. Again, speaking of the vineyard of God, Israel, Judah. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard they have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunders have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other and, uh, end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. Verse 13, they have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. Be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. The Lord's judgment was coming upon them. Their time was 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 up. God was going to bring what he called the sword of the Lord upon them, even though they were pagan Babylonian warriors who were coming over from Babylon to carry them away captive, to take all their treasure and everything else as booty. Uh, it was the sword of the Lord that he was sent. It was God's judgment upon his people because God does judge his people because his people know better. 
They know better. We're not ignorant. We know better. And so the Lord disciplines us. He chastens us because He loves us. But if if God has given you over, if He's not chastening you anymore, you're in trouble. Because he, if He's giving you over to your sins, that means that He's just giving you over to your sins. And then you're going to suffer the consequences of your sins and the wages of sin is always death in one form or another. It's God's mercy that He disciplines us. It's His mercy that He chastens us. He chastises us because He loves us. But if God gives you over, you're in a very, very precarious position. And this is what was happening to Judah. God was giving them over. He was giving them over to their enemies. In chapter 12 and verse 1, the same chapter here, but earlier in the verse, we read this, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. You let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? This is Jeremiah asking these questions to God. Why are those happy who who deal so treacherously. In other words, why are the wicked getting away with wickedness? They're prospering. Look at them, Lord, Jeremiah is saying. He says, you planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Like Jesus said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep from the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. And Jeremiah was asking the same question that righteous people have asked throughout history. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like the evil people get away with evil? Well, it's because that's not yet the end. God's being patient. He's giving them time to repent. But eventually God's patience is going to run out and His wrath is going to come. The Lord answers Jeremiah in verse 5 and says this, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses or the, or the uh, cavalry? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house, verse 7. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour." And then he goes right back into where we started about the vineyard. My rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They've trodden underfoot uh, um, my pleasant portion turned into a desolate wilderness. But it's interesting that as Jeremiah was kind of complaining to the Lord about why nobody was listening to him, why were the wicked prospering and God seemed to be allowing it to happen, uh, he, he basically told Jeremiah to, to straighten up you know, and, and to be strong. Uh, because he says, look, if, if you're getting weary by, you know, running with the foot soldiers, how are you going to do when the, when the cavalry comes on horseback? 
uh, you know, you need to be strong, Jeremiah, because this is going to be hard. What you're going to go through is going to be very, very difficult. The judgment of God. Very serious, very sobering thing to consider because Jesus is coming back to judge this earth before he sets up his kingdom. The judgment of God is coming. So what the whole book of Revelation is, is all about. It's the judgment of God being poured out upon a Christ-hating and Christ-rejecting world. And we live in a time when Christ is hated. He's cursed. His ways are hated. His word is hated. His church is hated around the world. What can God do but to come back and judge? He must judge because He's righteous. But He's so patient with us. He's so long-suffering. He, he calls to us. He wants people to humble themselves and repent and to turn back to Him and to find hope and to find life in Him. But eventually He will judge this nation and He will judge this world at the second coming of Christ. In Psalm chapter 80, the psalmist speaks about the vineyard of Israel. Psalm 80, verse 8, I'll read it to you, says this. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Again, the vine out of Egypt was, was Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God delivered them through Moses and the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and parting the Red Sea and so forth. So he says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You've cast out the nations and you've planted it. You prepared room for it and you caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with it, its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. And under King David and then King Solomon, Israel ruled the world. Israel ruled the known world, certainly all of the known world at that time uh, in the Middle East area, all the way to Babylon, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, down to Egypt. Solomon ruled over all of it. Uh, David's son, David is the one that really conquered all the nations uh, and brought them under the rule of Israel. Israel was a united nation, 12 tribes united under King Solomon. And yet he went after the gods of the nations and led the nation into idolatry but they were prolific they were prosperous they were blessed abundantly by god verse 12 says why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit the boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it return we beseech you O god of hosts Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will turn back from you, revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Verse 18, then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So the, the psalmist here crying out to God for mercy, crying out to God for revival, crying out to God for restoration. Why? Because they had been blasted by the Babylonians by this point. They'd been carried away captive. 
As a matter of fact, when they came back, they never really recovered from that Babylonian exile. They came back to the land, but they never had a king to rule over them again after that point. Not a legitimate sovereign king. They lost their sovereignty uh, because they went after other gods and they were always subservient to another power. Another king ruled over them, whether it was uh, the Greeks, whether it was the Persians, whether it was the Medes, the Babylonians, later the Romans. Uh, they never had their autonomy and their independence again after 586 B.C. And so the psalmist is crying out to God for mercy and asking God to restore his vineyard and to revive his people. The cry for restoration and revival. That should be the cry of every Christian right now, by the way, in America. If we don't see the handwriting on the walls, guys, that our nation, things are about to get really, really, really bad for us. I don't know what that means but it's not because of anything else other than the fact that we have gone after other gods. If we were to turn back to God as a nation, if we were to turn back to God as Christians, as the church, and, and begin to live for the Lord again, begin to walk in holiness and righteousness and purity, and begin to care for others more than we care about ourselves and seek to please the Lord and commit His Word to, to, to that which we teach our children and which we live by ourselves. If we don't do this, there's no hope for America. Just like there was no hope for Judah and there was no hope for Israel. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, Isaiah says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. You see, God was looking for them to be his people. A people should reflect and, and radiate their God. A man will always reflect his God. A man will become like his God. A man will become like that which he worships. And so if they were not practicing justice, but there was oppression. If they were not practicing righteousness, but, but, but there was a cry for help because there was unrighteousness in the land, uh, then they were no longer reflecting the God that they claimed to worship because a man becomes like his God. And so, again, we look at, at our country today. Uh, what would God say if he looked for justice in our land? Have you ever been to the courts recently, and, and especially the courts in California, to see how wicked the laws are? Uh, in California, I mean, really throughout the, the nation, but California is like the worst. Maybe New York, New York is worse than us, but I mean, the laws are so corrupt. There's no justice. What's evil is good and what's good is evil in our land today, just like it was, as we're going to see later in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, you call evil good and you call good evil, God would say to his people. There's no justice in the land. God's looking for righteousness, but instead there's oppression, a cry for help. He was looking for the fruit of truth and of meekness and of righteousness, which is the fruit that will define the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the earth and what it's going to be like in heaven. Psalm 45, verse 4, speaking about the beauty of the king, the king being the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what his kingdom is going to look like. It's going to be defined by truth, by meekness or humility, and by righteousness. This is what God is looking for in his people. We should reflect our God. Jesus said, learn from me, I'm meek and lowly and humble of heart. 
Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you shall find rest for your souls. But we have to be like Him. He's meek. He's lowly. He's humble. They were not producing the good fruit. They were producing the evil fruit. And so, God's patience was running out. His patience with Judah was wearing thin. And the hammer of judgment was about to fall. In Ezekiel chapter 15, we read this. Ezekiel was prophesying at the same time Jeremiah was. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. They both were prophesying about 100 years after Isaiah, uh, his, uh, after Isaiah's time. And uh, Ezekiel was actually carried away captive along with Daniel and the others into Babylon. Uh, and Ezekiel was prophesying to God's people that were already carried away captive in Babylon where Jeremiah was in Jerusalem prophesying to them in Jerusalem at the same time. They were contemporaries of one another. In Ezekiel chapter 15, we read this in verse 1. Again, it's about the vine. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel. So I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus, I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness says the Lord God. So here, God's very practical. He's very logical. He's saying, what good is a, a vineyard if it's not producing grapes? What's the point of a vineyard? What, what can you do with a vine? There's no value to a vine. You, you, can't, you can't build a house with it like a, a cedar tree or the, the cedars of Lebanon. You know, there, there's no, you can't build a ship out of it. There, there's, there's no value to a, to a vine. What, what value is a vine? in and of itself, if it's not producing fruit. He says you can't even use it to, to hang your pots and pans on in your houses. You can't even use it as a, uh, you know, as a peg to put into the wall, hammer into the wall so that you could hang your, your kitchen utensils on it, he's saying. There's no value to a vine in a vineyard if it's not producing fruit. The only thing that it's good for is to be burned up with fire. And so he's talking again about Israel. He's talking about Judah. And he's saying that it is going to burn. And it did burn. It was burned and raised to the ground by the Babylonians. In Hosea chapter 10, I'll read this to you. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 says this. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, 
They have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. So again, God is referring to Israel as his vine, his choice vine that he planted in the land. And he's saying that uh, they brought forth a lot of fruit. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. They prospered as I promised that they would. A land flowing with milk and honey. But according to all of their wealth and all of their blessings of the fruitfulness of the land, what did they do? They increased their altars. And according to their uh, bounty of the land, when they were really prospering uh, financially and economically, he says they have embellished his sacred pillars and their heart is divided. Now they're held guilty and he will, God will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. So again, when God takes a people and he blesses them, and they use all of those blessings to go worship other gods, what is God going to do with that person? What's he going to do with that nation? Why has he blessed our nation so much? Because we were a Christian nation, not a perfect nation, certainly, but we were at one time a Christian nation. I would even say a hundred years ago, we were a Christian nation. It's really only since probably the 1940s that the, that, that, that the faith of this nation has just gone down the tubes. The practical practice of the Christian faith in society, starting in the home, doesn't exist anymore, except for a very, very small number, a remnant in this nation. But that was not the case for hundreds of years of our history. And just like with Israel, God, uh, when they went after other gods and they spurned him and they turned their back to him, uh, God had to judge his people. And he will do the same to us in America if we don't repent. When Israel was taken away captive, or Judah was taken away captive, uh, there's an interesting psalm where it says that the, the, their captives in Babylon wanted them to, to play one of their songs. They have beautiful songs in Israel and Judah. I mean, they had the great psalmist uh, David who wrote all this bunch of psalms and Asa and the others. And, uh, uh, and, and so he says, he says this in Psalm 137 after they were carried away captive in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So see, they're not arrogant anymore. They're humbled. They're not going after the false gods anymore. They're pretty much enslaved. They're taken captive by the Babylonians and they're at the mercy of the Babylonian kings in Babylon. Uh, and their captives were saying, hey, we heard you have some good music over there in Jerusalem. Sing us one of your songs. Get your harp. 
You know, David, the, the, the psalmist, played his harp. Sing us one of your songs. And, and, and they said, how could we uh, sing a song, the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because they know that they were there because they deserved to be there. They were humbled at this point. They had forsaken the Lord and gone after other gods. And that was the consequence for their rebellion. And, uh, and yet, of course, the Jews to this day uh, are still a nation that is on the earth that God is still working with and working through. It's interesting that, you know, it's like the world is going right back because God's going to save Israel. He's, he, Jesus is coming back to save the Jews. He's coming back to save the nation of Israel. But Israel had to be in their land before Jesus, the king, the Messiah, could return to Jerusalem to save the Jews. Well, the Jews weren't in their land for almost 2,000 years, but they're in their land now. They're back in their land. They're established. They're actually the most powerful military anywhere in the Middle East, by far. They're probably one of the ten, top 10 militaries in the world, actually, for being such a tiny nation. They are a very powerful nation militarily. They're a powerhouse economically. They are uh, prospering there in Israel today, although uh, they've only been back in their land since 1948, established as a nation, May 14th, 1948. And it's kind of like God is, you know, the whole, the gospel's gone to the whole world. Jesus said that would happen before the end would come. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel will be preached to all nations as a witness, and then the end will come. Guess what, guys? Today, the gospel has been preached to every nation in the world. Every nation has heard the gospel message. Not everybody's received it. Not everybody's believed it. Jesus didn't say every individual is going to hear the gospel. He said every nation, the gospel is going to go to the whole world, and then the end will come. Well, that's happened now in our lifetimes. The gospel has gone out to the whole world through missionaries, through the internet, through radio, through Bible translations, Wycliffe Bible translators, and so forth. There, there are no unreached nations with the gospel. The whole world's heard the gospel message. Well, it just so happens that at this time, Israel happens to be back in their land after being displaced for almost 2,000 years, and they are a powerful nation to be reckoned with. The Jews are wanting to rebuild their temple, uh, the, the priests, the priesthood is reestablished. They're ready to start offering sacrifices there in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, and the stage is set. And it's like now it's kind of like the church, you know, it's kind of like the church's age is finished, which would make sense if Jesus was going to come back and take his church, his bride to heaven before the tribulation period, before the Antichrist comes, before uh, God pours out his wrath upon a Christ rejecting world and Jesus Christ returns to specifically Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives to save and deliver God's people Israel. But it's kind of like God worked with Israel all the way up until the nation rejected Jesus Christ. And then God reached out to the Gentiles through the gospel because the religious leaders of the Jews did not accept Jesus. They rejected him and his messianic claims his miracles and all the rest, his wisdom of his words, even his resurrection, they rejected it all. And so because they rejected their own Messiah, God put Israel aside and began to work with the whole world, began to work with the Gentiles, you and me, or most of us are Gentiles. Uh, Jews are still part of the church, but it's the overwhelming majority of the church is made up of Gentile nations. We make, make up the majority of the world's population. Uh, and so now that the gospel has gone to the whole world, the church is kind of you know, done her job by, 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 by evangelizing the world. Israel's back in their land. It just makes sense that it's time for, for Jesus to come back and take his church to heaven 
so that God can begin to focus on Israel again to save the Jews because that's what he's going to do. In Matthew chapter 21, as we wrap up here, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 33, Jesus said this, hear the parable, or hear another parable rather. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and he went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants. They beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now, Jesus was speaking about them. He was speaking about the nation of Israel. That was God's vineyard. The servants that he sent were the prophets that they killed. And then the son, Jesus is speaking of himself. They were about to kill Jesus. Jesus knew what was coming. This was right before his crucifixion, the same week of his crucifixion. And so he's telling them the parable, these religious Jewish leaders who were plotting to have him uh, executed later in the week. And, and he asked them, um, what will he do with those vine dressers? What will the owner of the vineyard do to those vine dressers, those who had uh, corruptly taken over the vineyard? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Which was exactly, they just pronounced their own judgment upon themselves. That's exactly what God was going to do to them, the nation of Israel, the religious Jewish leaders who conspired to have Jesus Christ killed. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And indeed he was. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the question is, and we're going to get into this next week, is what are we doing? What kind of fruit are we bearing now that we are those that God has put over his vineyard, over his people? What are we doing as the church? What kind of fruits are we bearing any better, any different than what the Jews, what Israel was bearing before Jesus came and was crucified? I don't know. We'll, we'll look at that next week. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it.
If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California. Okay, we're in the book of Isaiah. If you'd like to open up to Isaiah chapter 5. You were a quiet crowd tonight out there. <laughs> there are people here. If you're watching online, there are actually people here tonight. But they're just, they're just quiet tonight. So Very studious. Paying attention. Isaiah chapter 5. This is a, a fascinating study here. Um, with the parable of the vineyard. And this is going to be a two-part message. Uh, tonight is part one. And we're going to read Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. And uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, the message will be entitled, God's Beloved Vineyard. God's Beloved Vineyard, part one. And the subtitle is Bearing Good Fruit. And this evening, we're going to look at Israel as God's vineyard, which is actually what Isaiah is referring to, or who Isaiah is referring to here in the parable, is Israel, or Judah, as God's beloved vineyard. Next week, we're going to look at the church as God's vineyard, and uh, uh, we being those who now God is asking to bear fruit, even as he asked Old Testament Israel uh, to bear good fruit. They did not. And so he, he basically judged them. Uh, but then we are also called as Christians to bear good fruit in the New Testament. And, and Jesus uses those parables and those uh, allegories uh, to compare us to uh, his vineyard in the New Testament. So next week we'll look at the application for the church. This week it's going to be uh, more for Israel. So God's beloved vineyard, part one. Isaiah chapter five, verse one says this. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So again in verse 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So the Lord is, is calling out and calling to Israel, and here specifically Judah, uh, as his vineyard. He, he Basically, he called this nation into existence. They didn't exist before God made them to exist. Abraham was uh, really a Babylonian. He was from the Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldean area was Babylon. And so when God called Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, he, he took an idolater. He took a pagan because everybody after the flood, they were all pagans, really. It seemed that God had been forgotten after the flood. The knowledge of God was lost after the flood, apparently. Uh, and so God called Abram and said, I'm going to call you away from the idols. I'm going to bring you to a promised land. Uh, to the Holy Land, and, and you are going to be my chosen people, and you're going to have uh, a seed that is going to bless the whole earth. One of your offspring uh, is going to bless the whole earth uh, as a result of you, Abram. Genesis chapter 12. And, and, and God started with one man, and he built a whole nation from that one man, from Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. You had Isaac, you had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and this became the nation of Israel. So they didn't exist before God planted them in the land. They weren't his people before he called them his people. And they, uh, they blew it. They went after other gods rather than worshiping and loving and serving and obeying and reflecting the God who called them into existence. Uh, they went after the other gods of the heathens, the gods of, of the land, the pagan gods. And so God uh, sent his prophets. He sent his messengers. He tried to call them back to himself and they would they would turn back uh, uh, to their gods, to their idols uh, they, they'd have some, some, some good kings. They've, they'd have some bad kings. They've, they'd have some, some, some good prophets. They, they'd have some false prophets, but they just didn't really ever, uh, surrender completely to God as a nation. There was always that tug and that pull to go after other gods. Uh, and, and so God is now comparing, uh, as a parable here, uh, the vineyard that he planted to the nation of Israel that he planted in his land, in his land, the Holy Land, the land of Israel. Um, specifically, he's going to mention here the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the capital of Judah. So these were his chosen people. The Jews are still called 
God's chosen people. They are His elect. God called them His elect. They were a special people unto Himself, a special treasure unto Himself. And yet, they rejected Him. And they rejected His prophets. They killed His prophets that He sent to them. And eventually, God just had to judge them, severely judge them, uh, with uh, the Babylonian uh, siege and then the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and then the exile in the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So God says, I'm going to sing a song of my beloved uh, regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Verse 2, he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So God does everything well. Israel can't blame God. Judah can't blame God for their fruitlessness or for producing bad fruit. It wasn't God's fault. God did everything right. God planted them there. He gave them everything they needed. He cleared out the stones and, 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 and planted the choicest vine. He put a tower in its midst and, and he made a wine press. He expected that it was going to bring forth great fruit. Why wouldn't it? It was a vine that he had planted, a choice vine that he had planted. Uh, and so, uh, he, he set them up for a fruitful harvest, but in the end, they produced wild grapes or sour grapes, useless, worthless grapes, grapes that would just be growing on their own on the hillside uh, wildly, no value to them. And, and so uh, the Lord is going to say what he's going to do with this vineyard here in a minute. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there, this, this theme, this idea of, of Israel being the vineyard of God uh, is is something that actually is throughout the Old Testament. God compared, and we'll look at a bunch of scriptures here tonight about that in the Old Testament, about Israel being likened to God's vineyard. But in Deuteronomy chapter 11, here in the book of the law, Moses, uh, you know, uh, speaking here and writing here, Deuteronomy 11, verse 10, we read this. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you have sown your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. It was a very special land to God. It's still a special land to God, actually. Even to this day, Israel is a very special place to God. Uh, he has plans for Israel. He has plans for Jerusalem. Uh, even today, thousands of years later. But God was saying, I put you in the best place. I, I, gave, I, I got, got rid of all of your enemies. I gave you cities that you didn't have to build. You just moved right into cities that you didn't build. Houses. You lived in houses that you didn't build. Cities that you didn't build. You ate from the crops that you didn't plant. You had all of the livestock because they, they drove out all the enemies. God went before them and drove out all of the pagans that were there, the enemies, as they came in to take possession of the land. And it was turnkey. They walked right in and everything was there for them. And it was indeed a land that was flowing with milk and honey. The Lord, the Lord loved His people and He loves His promised land. 
We read in verse 13, God says, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Remember, this is before they went into the promised land. Moses is, 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 the Lord is speaking through Moses. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the last book of the law. And it was before they went in. So all of these were prophecies that, of course, were later fulfilled. Uh, but God is warning them. He says, take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and you serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and He shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth." For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours." from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. Verse 26, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the Lord your God, but, but turn aside from the way which I command you to go, to go after other gods which you have not known, that's exactly what they did. And by the time Isaiah was on the scene, they were pretty much too far gone into idolatry of the worship of all these other gods. There really was no, at that point, there was really no turning the nation back around again, like turning around an aircraft carrier on a dime out at sea. It just wasn't going to happen. The people, even though they had good kings, uh, they had King Hezekiah, they had King Josiah, uh, they had King Uzziah. These were good godly kings, but the people's hearts were wicked. Uh, and they didn't want to worship the Lord. They went through the motions of going to temple and offering the sacrifice and, and saying their prayers and so forth. But they were secretly 
worshiping other gods in the high places, in the oak groves, and so forth. And they were even offering their children as human sacrifices to Molech and worshiping Ashtoreth and Baal. And, and it, there was just no reaching them. There was no turning them around. And, and God had warned them. He had promised them a blessing if they loved Him and they served Him and a curse if they went after the other gods. And so God uh, gave them every opportunity uh, to, to be successful as a nation and to be uh, prosperous as a nation and to be fruitful as a nation. But they turned and they went after other gods. Back in Isaiah 5, verse 3, he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. So we know now he's talking to, to those in Judah and those in Jerusalem, which is where the priests were, where the temple was, where the king was ruling from, was in Jerusalem and Judah. And so he's speaking to the leaders, spiritual and political leaders of the nation. And he's saying, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, what, what, you know, if I've done something wrong, tell me, God is saying. If there's something I've done wrong here, tell me what I've done wrong. Judge between me and my vineyard. And then he says in verse 4, what more could have been done to my vineyard than what I, that I have not done in it? What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? The Lord is saying, what more could I have done for you, Israel? What more could I have done? I gave you everything. I gave you every opportunity. I was so patient with you for all these hundreds of years. And, and yet you're still not fruitful. You're not bearing the fruit that I want to see. You're going after uh, these other gods, which was spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication by going after other gods. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I'll read this to you here. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 15 talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which actually came after Isaiah prophesied, not long after, within probably 100 years of when Isaiah prophesied, maybe 120 years. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them. 2 Chronicles 36.15 the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, the prophets, rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. Verse 17, therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And, and so uh, the record states that they, that they rejected God's messengers Again and again, they rejected and killed his prophets, the one who he was sending. They, they despised his words. They didn't want to hear God's word. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? People don't want to hear God's word anymore in this country. People don't want to hear the things that God has. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about righteousness, holiness. They don't want to hear about the gospel because it means that if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to hell according to the gospel message. 
And so the church is, is dumbing down and watering down the message, giving easy messages that are easy to hear, tickling the ears of the congregants. And now we have a biblically illiterate generation in our country. And now when people hear the Bible, just like the Jews of old, of Judah of old, they hate the Word of God. They hate the prophets of God. They don't want to hear you speak. Like David said, uh, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. In other words, everybody's happy if you keep your mouth shut. But as soon as you start proclaiming the truth of God's Word, you start talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge this world and that if we don't repent, our nation is going to be judged by God. They turn us off. And, and, and literally, sometimes they turn us off of the Internet now. Uh, they're beginning censorship on, on the Internet messages that they will allow that's going out there all over the Internet. So uh, it, there's just nothing new under the sun. I mean, you look at our country and all that God has done for our country and our country is coming apart at the seams. Of course, there's bigots and there's racists on all sides. There, there's racists of all different stripes, shades, and colors. Always have been. It's sin. It's sin nature. It's evil. It's wrong. Uh, but the, that's not the reason that our country's coming apart at the seams in 2020. The reason is, is because we've rejected the God who founded this country, just like Israel did. We've been here in our land 400 years or so, at least the, the pilgrims that came over, the Quakers, uh, John uh, uh, Penn and, and the others that came, William Penn and the others that came over and founded this country in Jamestown, 1605. It was so that they could be free to worship God as Christians. They didn't want to have to worship at the Roman Catholic churches in Europe. They didn't want to have to worship at the Church of England and make the king of England, who was a corrupt king, wicked king, uh, to see him as the head of the church. So they came here to have religious freedom. And that's that that was the foundation of our country. The light and the glory is a great book of history about the founding of our of, of our of our nation, uh, even prior to the American Revolution and all of that. You know that uh, today they want to take down statues. Commemorating Abraham Lincoln at college campuses. Because they say Abraham Lincoln, although he was anti-slavery, he was not pro-black. He was not, um, he was not somebody who was for the black population of his time. He believed in, even though he didn't believe in slavery, he believed in a separation of the peoples that probably it would be best. This is in 1858. He had a speech. Uh, before he ran for president, uh, before the Civil War began, that he said that he believed that, 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 that every man should be created equal, every man should be free, but he didn't believe in desegregating the society. He said it would never work. Remember, 1858. It wouldn't have worked in 1858. My goodness, it took, you know, a hundred years plus for desegregation to take place realistically in this country. And, and yet because he was for segregation of some sort in 1858 before the Civil War. It doesn't matter that he's the one that, you know, gave the greatest speech in our history, the Emancipation Proclamation, and set all of the slaves free in 1863. He still needs to go. His statue needs to go because he was not, you know, he was, he, he was, he, he wasn't enough on that side. And, and so be, be aware that there's, you know, we're all going to have a, a crosshairs on us. I, I read an NPR news earlier tonight that now they're looking at Christian churches 
with, with the, you know, with the microscope, with the magnifying glass saying, you know, the Christian churches have a history of racism in America that still persists to this day. And so it's, uh, our country is coming apart at the seams, guys. And it's because we've turned our back on God. In other words, if we were serving and loving uh, God, we would love one another no matter what color of the skin uh, the person has. We would love each other. We would esteem others higher than ourselves. We would do good to one another. That's what Christians are supposed to do. But because we have rejected God, we've thrown Him out of our schools. We've thrown Him out of our government. We've thrown Him out of our entertainment. All the entertainment is not just godless. It is that. Our entertainment is godless. But it's worse than that. It's evil. It's wicked. It promotes wickedness. And so this is the reason our country is falling apart. Just like what happened to Israel. Just like what happened to Judah. And if we don't turn back to God and humble ourselves and, and begin to re-surrender, as it were, ourselves, the Christians in this nation, humble ourselves, surrender ourselves afresh and anew to God, I don't think there's any hope left for this nation. I don't know how much time we have. And I'm not saying that we're going to cease to exist, but we certainly will not be the powerhouse that we are today. We're still the most prosperous, wealthiest nation in the history of the world. We have the most powerful economy. Everybody uses our dollars all over the world. We have the most powerful military in the world. That protects our shores. You know, we've never fought another war on our soil, really, except for the Civil War, uh, after we were established as a nation. We've never been invaded by a foreign army. But that could very easily change. We have lots of enemies out there. And so if we turn our backs on God and think, well, we don't need Christianity. We don't need the Bible. We don't want to hear the Word of God. All that's left is judgment because we are no longer, just like Israel, we are no longer God's people. And God doesn't owe us anything but to judge us for our sins. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 17, Jeremiah was literally boots on the ground uh, testifying and prophesying to the kings of Judah and to the priests in Jerusalem before the Babylonians came and, uh, and just decimated them. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Have you not brought this on yourself? He's asking the question rhetorically. Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when He led you in the way? And now, why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Verse 20, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down plain the harlot, yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. Verse 23, how can you say I am not polluted? 
I have not gone after the Baals. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. What more could the Lord have done? He did everything He could and they didn't want Him. They rejected Him. They spurned Him. They hated His prophets. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, not only did they not listen to Jeremiah, but they listened to all the false prophets who were prophesying to them. And they didn't listen to the one true prophet. And then they threw him in jail. They threw him into the public latrine, the toilet. Uh, they, they mocked him. And, and so God is saying, what, what more could I do? What else could I have done for you than what I have done? He continues in verse 26 of Jeremiah 2. It says, as the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you are my father and to a stone you gave birth to me for they have turned their back on me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Sounds pretty familiar. You know, nobody wants God's rules. They don't want His laws. They don't want His commandments until your world's falling apart. And then, oh, God, save us, save us, save us. We're the same way. And, and God was saying, you know, you're going after these other gods. You're, 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 you're worshiping trees. They made statues and idols out of wood. You're worshiping stones. They carved statues and idols out of stone. And He's saying, you know, you're acting like these you know, inanimate things made you. My father is a tree. My mother is a stone. You're worshiping and bowing down and they were even offering their children as human sacrifices to their idols. He continues. He says in verse 28, but where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. That's how many gods that they worship was the number of cities or the number of your gods, O Judah. He says, why will you plead with me? For you you all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Verse 35 says this, Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. And see, the problem is, is that they were filled with iniquity. They were filled with wickedness. They were filled with sin, just like our nation is today. And yet we don't think that God's going to judge our nation. Why? Because we're America? What does God owe America? Who are we if we're not a Christian nation? Who are we if we're not the great missionary nation sending missionaries out over the world? Who are we if we're not the the city that is set upon a hill that cannot be hidden that we once were in our history? Not a perfect nation, certainly. We're, we're, We're humans and we have a lot of wickedness in our history, but we were a Christian nation before and we're not anymore. And so there's nothing left for God to do with the people that have spurned Him, turned their backs to Him, and gone to worship other gods than for him to remove his blessing and to allow the natural consequences for their sins to come against them. In Jeremiah chapter 7, in verse 23, we read this. 
But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Like the idea of backsliding. They went backward and not forward. Since the day, verse 25, that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet, They did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. Wild grapes, fruitless wickedness in the land of Judah, the land, the holy land, the promised land of God. The land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> and, and they would not obey. They would not incline their ear, but they followed their own counsels and went after the dictates of their own evil hearts. And that is always the problem. We want to do our own thing. <clears throat> we don't want God or anyone to tell us how to live. And whenever you look at Israel's history, really, you can look at the history of the world, even the history of the church. Whenever you have a people where every man is doing, every woman is doing what's right in their own eyes, that's the beginning of the end for that nation, at least as a powerful uh, nation on the earth. When everyone is doing what they want to do, that's the beginning of the end. And and that was true for um, Israel. It was true for Judah. It, it was true for Rome. It was true for Spain. It was true for uh, Greece and the Greek Orthodox Church. It was true for, for England and the Church of England. All of these great nations that were Christian nations at one time. And it's going to be true for America. We are not going to be exempt from this law. When everybody is, is doing what they want and nobody has an appetite for the Word of God. Not nobody. You're here tonight. I know there's some of you. There's the remnant always. There's always the remnant. But the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians have no appetite for the Word of God. They have no appetite for the things of God. What hope do we have if the Christians don't want God to interfere in their lives? There is no more hope. Our only hope is to turn back to the Lord. And Israel here was producing wild grapes and wickedness in the land and God was sending them his prophets and his word and his messengers and they were rejecting and refusing to hear them he continues back in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 5 and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down I will lay it waste, verse 6. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Remember, God had warned them in Deuteronomy, don't think once you go into the land and you're being blessed, don't think. 
that I'm not the one bringing the blessings. Don't think that you're going to be blessed if you turn after other gods. It's not going to happen. He warned them and he warned them and he warned them again. And Isaiah is warning them a hundred years before the Babylonians ever came and besieged them and carried them away captive. So God was still warning them here through Isaiah, you know, decades at least, but probably closer to 125 years before the Babylonians came in in 586 BC and carried them away captive. And so he's saying, uh, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take away the hedge of protection and it's going to be destroyed. My vineyard is going to be torn down. It's going to be burned with fire. He says, I'm going to break down its walls. It'll be trampled over and trampled underfoot. You remember in the book of Job that uh, God had said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Perfect man, a righteous man. He always does what's right and he loves me. And uh, Satan says, well, that's because you put a hedge of protection around him. I can't get to him because you've hedged him about. I can't get to him. If you were to remove the hedge and I had access to him, he would curse you to your face. And, and you know the story. But uh, God does put a hedge of protection around his people. We don't know what he's protecting us from. The evil that's out there to try and destroy us and to try and harm us individually, our families, our churches, our nations. You know, they're, they're, if God doesn't protect us and the enemy has full reign to just come and to rip us to pieces, none of us would survive. And so God is saying here, I am going to remove your hedge and your enemies are going to come in and they are going to trample you underfoot and burn your city to the ground, which is exactly what ended up happening. That's what happens to any nation that forgets God that knew God and forgets God and they go after other gods, the gods of this world. And the gods of this world are always represented, no matter what you call them, by power, by pleasure, by sex, by lust, by money, by violence and war. All of these things are worshipped as gods by mankind and humankind because everybody wants power or pleasure or uh, sometimes they want protection against they're afraid of some of the gods that are worshipped. And so they worship other gods that are supposedly going to protect them from the other gods. So uh, any nation or any person that forgets God and, and goes after other gods, uh, you know, it's a losing strategy. You're never going to uh, succeed in that quest to find purpose or to find uh, hope. Back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a lot to actually say about, about this because Jeremiah was, was literally prophesying at the time that it was happening where Isaiah was prophesying a hundred years before it was happening. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10 says this. Again, speaking of the vineyard of God, Israel, Judah. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard they have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunders have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. Verse 13, they have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. 
be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. The Lord's judgment was coming upon them. Their time was 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 up. God was going to bring what he called the sword of the Lord upon them, even though they were pagan Babylonian warriors who were coming over from Babylon to carry them away captive, to take all their treasure and everything else as booty. Uh, it was the sword of the Lord that he was sent. It was God's judgment upon his people because God does judge his people because his people know better. They know better. We're not ignorant. We know better. And so the Lord disciplines us. He chastens us because he loves us. But if, if, if God has given you over, if he's not chastening you anymore, you're in trouble because he, if he's given you over to your sins, that means that he's just giving you over to your sins and then you're going to suffer the consequences of your sins and the wages of sin is always death in one form or another. It's God's mercy that he disciplines us. It's his mercy that he chastens us. He chastises us because he loves us. But if God gives you over, you're in a very, very precarious position. And this is what was happening to Judah. God was giving them over. He was giving them over to their enemies. In chapter 12 and verse 1, the same chapter here, but earlier in the verse, we read this, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. You let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? This is Jeremiah asking these questions to God. Why are those happy who, who deal so treacherously? In other words, why are the wicked getting away with wickedness? They're prospering. Look at them, Lord, Jeremiah is saying. He says, you planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Like Jesus said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep from the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. And Jeremiah was asking the same question that righteous people have asked throughout history. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like the evil people get away with evil? Well, it's because that's not yet the end. God's being patient. He's giving them time to repent. But eventually God's patience is going to run out and his wrath is going to come. The Lord answers Jeremiah in verse 5 and says this, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses or the, or the uh, cavalry? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house, verse 7. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. And then he goes right back into where we started about the vineyard. 
My rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They've trodden underfoot. Uh, um, my pleasant portion turned into a desolate wilderness. But it's interesting that as Jeremiah was kind of complaining to the Lord about why nobody was listening to him, why were the wicked prospering and God seemed to be allowing it to happen, uh, he, he basically told Jeremiah to, to straighten up, you know, and, and to be strong. Uh, because he says, look, if, if you're getting weary by, you know, running with the foot soldiers, how are you going to do when the, when the cavalry comes on horseback? Uh, you know, you need to be strong, Jeremiah, because this is going to be hard. What you're going to go through is going to be very, very difficult. The judgment of God. Very serious, very sobering thing to consider. Because Jesus is coming back to judge this earth before he sets up his kingdom. The judgment of God is coming. It's what the whole book of Revelation is, is all about. It's the judgment of God being poured out upon a Christ-hating and Christ-rejecting world. And we live in a time when Christ is hated. He's cursed. His ways are hated. His word is hated. His church is hated around the world. What can God do but to come back and judge? He must judge because He's righteous. But He's so patient with us. He's so long-suffering. He, he calls to us. He wants people to humble themselves and repent and to turn back to Him and to find hope and to find life in Him. But eventually, He will judge this nation and He will judge this world at the second coming of Christ. In Psalm chapter 80, the psalmist speaks about the vineyard of Israel. Psalm 80, verse 8, I'll read it to you, says this. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Again, the vine out of Egypt was, was Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God delivered them through Moses and the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and parting the Red Sea and so forth. So he says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you've cast out the nations, and you've planted it. You prepared room for it, and you caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with it, its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea, and her branches to the river. And under King David and then King Solomon, Israel ruled the world. Israel ruled the known world, certainly all of the known world at that time uh, in the Middle East area, all the way to Babylon, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, down to Egypt. Solomon ruled over all of it. Uh, David's son, David is the one that really conquered all the nations uh, and, and brought them under the rule of Israel. Israel was a united nation, 12 tribes united under King Solomon. And yet he went after the gods of the nations and led the nation into idolatry, but they were prolific. They were prosperous. They were blessed abundantly by God. Verse 12 says, why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will turn back from you, revive us, and we will call 
upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Verse 18, then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So the, the psalmist here crying out to God for mercy, crying out to God for revival, crying out to God for restoration. Why? Because they had been blasted by the Babylonians by this point. They'd been carried away captive. As a matter of fact, when they came back, they never really recovered from that Babylonian exile. They came back to the land, but they never had a king to rule over them again after that point. Not a legitimate sovereign king. They lost their sovereignty uh, because they went after other gods and they were always subservient to another power. Another king ruled over them, whether it was uh, the Greeks, whether it was the Persians, whether it was the Medes, the Babylonians, later the Romans. Uh, they never had their autonomy and their independence again after 586 B.C. And so the psalmist is crying out to God for mercy and asking God to restore His vineyard and to revive His people. The cry for restoration and revival. That should be the cry of every Christian right now, by the way, in America. If we don't see the handwriting on the walls, guys, that our nation, things are about to get really, really, really bad for us. I don't know what that means but it's not because of anything else other than the fact that we have gone after other gods. If we were to turn back to God as a nation, if we were to turn back to God as Christians, as the church, and, and begin to live for the Lord again, begin to walk in holiness and righteousness and purity, and begin to care for others more than we care about ourselves and seek to please the Lord and commit His Word to, to, to that which we teach our children and which we live by ourselves. If we don't do this, there's no hope for America. Just like there was no hope for Judah and there was no hope for Israel. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, Isaiah says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. You see, God was looking for them to be his people. A people should reflect and, and radiate their God. A man will always reflect his God. A man will become like his God. A man will become like that which he worships. And so if they were not practicing justice, uh, but there was oppression. If they were not practicing righteousness, but, but, but there was a cry for help because there was unrighteousness in the land, uh, then they were no longer reflecting the God that they claimed to worship because a man becomes like his God. And so, again, we look at, at our country today. Uh, what would God say if he looked for justice in our land? Have you ever been to the courts recently, and, and especially the courts in California, to see how wicked the laws are? Uh, in California, I mean, really throughout the, the nation, but California is like the worst. Maybe New, New York is worse than us, but I mean, the laws are so corrupt. There's no justice. What's evil is good and what's good is evil in our land today, just like it was, as we're going to see later in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, you call evil good and you call good evil. God would say to his people, there's no justice in the land. God's looking for righteousness, but instead there's oppression, a cry for help. He was looking for the fruit of truth 
and of meekness and of righteousness, which is the fruit that will define the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the earth and what it's going to be like in heaven. Psalm 45, verse 4, speaking about the beauty of the king, the king being the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what his kingdom is going to look like. It's going to be defined by truth, by meekness or humility, and by righteousness. This is what God is looking for in his people. We should reflect our God. Jesus said, learn from me. I'm meek and lowly and humble of heart. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you shall find rest for your souls. But we have to be like Him. He's meek. He's lowly. He's humble. They were not producing the good fruit. They were producing the evil fruit. And so, God's patience was running out. His patience with Judah was wearing thin. And the hammer of judgment was about to fall. In Ezekiel chapter 15, we read this. Ezekiel was prophesying at the same time Jeremiah was. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. They both were prophesying about 100 years after Isaiah, uh, his, uh, after Isaiah's time. And uh, Ezekiel was actually carried away captive along with Daniel and the others into Babylon. Uh, and Ezekiel was prophesying to God's people that were already carried away captive in Babylon where Jeremiah was in Jerusalem prophesying to them in Jerusalem at the same time. They were contemporaries of one another. In Ezekiel chapter 15, we read this in verse 1. Again, it's about the vine. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel. So I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus, I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness says the Lord God. So here, God's very practical. He's very logical. He's saying, what good is a, a vineyard if it's not producing grapes? What's the point of a vineyard? What, what can you do with a vine? There's no value to a vine. You, you, can't, you can't build a house with it like a, a cedar tree or the, the cedars of Lebanon. You, know, there, there's no, you can't build a ship out of it. There, there's, there's no value to a, to a vine. What, what value is a vine? in and of itself, if it's not producing fruit. He says you can't even use it to, to hang your pots and pans on in your houses. You can't even use it as a, uh, you know, uh, as a peg to put into the wall, hammer into the wall so that you could hang your, your kitchen utensils on it, he's saying. There's no value to a vine in a vineyard if it's not producing fruit. The only thing that it's good for is to be burned up with fire. And so he's talking again about Israel. He's talking about Judah. And he's saying that it is going to burn. And it did burn 
It was burned and razed to the ground by the Babylonians. In Hosea chapter 10, I'll read this to you. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 says this. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. So again, God is referring to Israel as his vine, his choice vine that he planted in the land. And he's saying that uh, they brought forth a lot of fruit. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. They prospered as I promised that they would. A land flowing with milk and honey. But according to all of their wealth and all of their blessings of the fruitfulness of the land, what did they do? They increased their altars. And according to their uh, bounty of the land, when they were really prospering uh, financially and economically, he says they have embellished his sacred pillars and their heart is divided. Now they're held guilty and he will, God will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. So again, when God takes a people and he blesses them, and they use all of those blessings to go worship other gods. What is God going to do with that person? What's he going to do with that nation? Why has he blessed our nation so much? Because we were a Christian nation, not a perfect nation, certainly. But we were at one time a Christian nation. I would even say 100 years ago, we were a Christian nation. It's really only since probably the 1940s that the, 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 the faith of this nation has just gone down the tubes. The practical practice of the Christian faith in society, starting in the home, doesn't exist anymore, except for a very, very small number, a remnant in this nation. But that was not the case for hundreds of years of our history. And just like with Israel, God, uh, when they went after other gods and they spurned him and they turned their back to him, uh, God had to judge his people. And he will do the same to us in America if we don't repent. When Israel was taken away captive, or Judah was taken away captive, uh, there's an interesting psalm where it says that the, the, their captives in Babylon wanted them to, to play one of their songs. They had beautiful songs in Israel and Judah. I mean, they had the great psalmist uh, David who wrote all this bunch of psalms and Asa and the others. And, uh, uh, and, and so he says, he says this in Psalm 137 after they were carried away captive in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. 
If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So see, they're not arrogant anymore. They're humbled. They're not going after the false gods anymore. They're pretty much enslaved. They're taken captive by the Babylonians and they're at the mercy of the Babylonian kings in Babylon. Uh, and their captives were saying, hey, we heard you have some good music over there in Jerusalem. Sing us one of your songs. Get your harp. You know, David, the, the, the psalmist, played his harp. Sing us one of your songs. And, and, and they said, how could we uh, sing a song, the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because they know that they were there because they deserved to be there. They were humbled at this point. They had forsaken the Lord and gone after other gods. And that was the consequence for their rebellion. And, uh, and yet, of course, the Jews to this day uh, are still a nation that is on the earth that God is still working with and working through. It's interesting that, you know, it's like the world is going right back because God's going to save Israel. He's, he, Jesus is coming back to save the Jews. He's coming back to save the nation of Israel. But Israel had to be in their land before Jesus, the king, the Messiah, could return to Jerusalem to save the Jews. Well, the Jews weren't in their land for almost 2,000 years, but they're in their land now. They're back in their land. They're established. They're actually the most powerful military anywhere in the Middle East, by far. They're probably one of the ten, top 10 militaries in the world, actually, for being such a tiny nation. They are a very powerful nation militarily. They're a powerhouse economically. They are uh, prospering there in Israel today, although uh, they've only been back in their land since 1948, established as a nation, May 14th, 1948. And it's kind of like God is, you know, the whole, the gospel's gone to the whole world. Jesus said that would happen before the end would come. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel will be preached to all nations as a witness, and then the end will come. Guess what, guys? Today, the gospel has been preached to every nation in the world. Every nation has heard the gospel message. Not everybody's received it. Not everybody's believed it. Jesus didn't say every individual is going to hear the gospel. He said every nation, the gospel is going to go to the whole world, and then the end will come. Well, that's happened now in our lifetimes. The gospel has gone out to the whole world through missionaries, through the internet, through radio, through Bible translations, Wycliffe Bible translators, and so forth. There, there are no unreached nations with the gospel. The whole world's heard the gospel message. Well, it just so happens that at this time, Israel happens to be back in their land after being displaced for almost 2,000 years, and they are a powerful nation to be reckoned with. The Jews are wanting to rebuild their temple, uh, the, the priests, the priesthood is reestablished. They're ready to start offering sacrifices there in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, and the stage is set. And it's like now, it's kind of like the church, you know, it's kind of like the church's age is finished. Which would make sense if Jesus was going to come back and take his church, his bride to heaven before the tribulation period, before the Antichrist comes, before uh, God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, and Jesus Christ returns to specifically Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, to save and deliver God's people Israel. But it's kind of like God worked with Israel all the way up until the nation rejected Jesus Christ. And then God reached out to the Gentiles through the gospel because the religious leaders of the Jews did not accept Jesus. They rejected him and his messianic claims his miracles and all the rest, his wisdom of his words, even his resurrection, they rejected it all. And so because they rejected their own Messiah, 
God put Israel aside and began to work with the whole world, began to work with the Gentiles, you and me, or most of us are Gentiles. Uh, Jews are still part of the church, but it's the overwhelming majority of the church is made up of Gentile nations. We make, make up the majority of the world's population. Uh, and so now that the gospel has gone to the whole world, the church has kind of, you know, done her job by, 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 by evangelizing the world. Israel's back in their land. It just makes sense that it's time for, for Jesus to come back and take his church to heaven so that God can begin to focus on Israel again to save the Jews, because that's what he's going to do. In Matthew chapter 21, as we wrap up here, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 33, Jesus said this, Hear the parable, or hear another parable rather. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and he went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants. They beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now, Jesus was speaking about them. He was speaking about the nation of Israel. That was God's vineyard. The servants that he sent were the prophets that they killed. And then the son, Jesus is speaking of himself. They were about to kill Jesus. Jesus knew what was coming. This was right before his crucifixion, the same week of his crucifixion. And so he's telling them the parable, these religious Jewish leaders who were plotting to have him uh, executed later in the week. And, and he asked them, um, what will he do with those vine dressers? What will the owner of the vineyard do to those vine dressers, those who had uh, corruptly taken over the vineyard? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Which was exactly, they just pronounced their own judgment upon themselves. That's exactly what God was going to do to them, the nation of Israel, the religious Jewish leaders who conspired to have Jesus Christ killed. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken." but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And indeed he was. And that's exactly what happened. Now the question is, and we're going to get into this next week, is what are we doing? What kind of fruit are we bearing? Now that we are those that God has put over his vineyard, over his people. What are we doing as the church? What kind of fruits are we bearing? 
any better, any different than what the Jews, what Israel was bearing before Jesus came and was crucified? I don't know. We'll, we'll look at that next week. 